Welcome to the Be Brilliant People podcast with your host, me, Mike Bedford. Hello and uh, welcome to the Well and D podcast. I'm Mike Bedford and each month I invite industry leaders, experts and people who are just passionate about and active in the people profession and beyond. I'm delighted to be joined today by someone who needs little in the way of introductions, Paul Matthews. Paul, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks very much for giving up your time and for uh, for coming on the uh, on the Well and D podcast. Um, for those who don't know who you are, Paul, um, and, and what you do, um, would you like to give yourself just a, a quick introduction? <laughs> what I do? Um, I do as little as possible, as often as possible, but fail at it miserably. Um, the, uh, I suppose I'm in the learning and development area. I've written three books in that area, um, which some people say have, have helped them a lot. Uh, I also speak at conferences. And alongside that, I've got a software company which specializes in, in niche learning software that focuses on sort of learning workflows and learning journeys. Uh, with some quite nice big blue chip clients on it as well. So yeah, it's a busy time. It's a very busy time. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's great, Paul. And I think that you set up the next question really nicely um, there. Then in terms of you know we are all really busy right now, aren't we? And we're we're all having lived through and still living through um, a global pandemic. Um, so I wondered, how are you right now? And I mean, genuinely, how are you? How are you coping and feeling right now? I think I'm I'm good. I, I got a bit stressed uh, for a while when the you know the pandemic hit in. Um, <clears throat> not so much that it caused any serious issues, but just there was just a lot going on, and of course, handling all the changes. Um, you know, a lot of plans went out the window. And of course, business-wise, revenue dropped for a little while. It's come back again since we've had some record months. So yeah. it's fine. But it was just an interesting experience to kind of have the rug ripped out from under your feet for a while yeah. until you found your footing again. Um, so yeah, and that obviously plays out in your life in different ways, both privately and in your business. So. Yeah, no, true, true. Thanks for sharing those uh those reflections and do, and do you think you've seen any kind of major changes to our profession as a result of the pandemic? Well there's been a huge number of changes and it's kind of difficult to sort of list them out as such mm. but people's attitude has changed and also the attitude of those dealing with L&D has changed. I think mm. one of the things that I noticed was that um, clearly people couldn't just go and sit in the classroom anymore uh, in most countries in the world. And so suddenly there was a move to digital. Mm. But what was more striking about that to me was not so much the move to digital, which was kind of going on anyway, and it just accelerated hugely. And a lot of people have said that, mm. is that the senior teams in organizations who previously would have said, oh, just there's a problem over there, go and train those people, put them in a classroom. Mm. They were no longer able to say that and the senior teams are kind of at a loss as to what to say. So suddenly they couldn't dictate things to learning and development quite as much as they used to. Mm. And so suddenly learning and development was asking, was being asked, well, what's your opinion about what we should do, mm. rather than being forced into a shopkeeper role where they were just told to deliver things on, on, on order or on demand. Mm. 
Mm. So I think the role that L&D has played in organisations has shifted subtly um, with that. And I hope that shift continues um, rather than snaps back to what it was. Yeah, no, I yeah. Uh... I agree with you on that, Paul, and I think that 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 shift is palpable, isn't it? Um, and do you think L&D professionals have had to adapt and broaden and expand their own um, areas of expertise and knowledge too as a result of the pandemic in terms of being involved with much broader, wider areas and considerations than perhaps what traditionally L&D teams might have done? Yeah, well, that goes without saying, you know, when conditions change, you have to change in order to meet the new conditions. And that's certainly been the case for L&D. So, yes, there's been a lot of new skills and and ways of thinking required. And some have responded to that better than others. Mm, no, definitely. And do you think that might therefore influence that that senior team um, view of, of what L&D is? Um, if, if, for example, you're looking at that best practice there and those models are good practice where people have adapted and kind of, you know, served the business for what the business needs at that time. Therefore, does that give the SLT that different perspective actually on actually, you know, these guys had real value here? I think it has in some organisations where the things that L&D ended up doing have worked at least as well or better than what was being done prior to the pandemic. So in that sense, they've gained some credibility. Yeah. Um, where what they did was a knee-jerk reaction of, I'll oh, just get this face-to-face course online fast and yeah. do it any way you can, and they did it, and then and it wasn't done that well, the results probably haven't been perhaps as good as they used to be, and so now that maybe has even um, lessened their credibility in the eyes of the SLT. So I think we're going to see a spread of, of, of reactions to that from senior teams just depending on what happened and how it all went down. Yeah, no, true, true. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've certainly seen more of an appetite for recruiting L&D roles seem to surge. Um, certainly over the last six, 12 months, I've seen a, a huge increase um, in terms of people recruiting for L&D people. Um, I've not noticed that personally, but then again, I'm not looking for an LNG job no, right now, so no, I guess no. I haven't been perusing the wanted ads, but uh, yeah. it's interesting that you say that. And it doesn't surprise me because I think it's fairly obvious with the level and rate of change going on that people in organisations will have to learn more and faster in order to yeah. keep up with the changes and the new ways of working. So it's natural that people would start thinking, well, we better beef up our L&D department in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, what the L&D department then delivers is a different story. If they deliver the same old, same old, then, you know, maybe that's not such a great thing. Um, I think this is a great chance to rebuild and rethink. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly courses like there's one leadership course I'm aware of, of a, a company that's using our software. They've um, been doing that course for many years uh, into a big government department, a standard leadership course. Um, They were obviously unable to deliver that in the traditional classroom way last year. So they shifted it onto our platform and uh, and into a a virtual um, program that was spread over a longer period of time. And the customer came back and said, hey, this is working much better than the old classroom stuff. And this year they're just going ahead with even more people on the same, um, you know, virtual remote course and have no 
intentions of ever taking that course back to the classroom, as far as I'm aware. So I think there's certainly some really great stuff. And then there's other places where people are saying they can't wait to get back to the classroom mm -hmm. for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it depends on the program. It depends on the culture and the organization and a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you've you've written some some great books, um, Paul, haven't you? And um, I've been reading your informal learning um, book and obviously your, your books around capability at work and, and learning transfers, too. But I was thinking from that informal learning perspective i know you wrote that a few years ago now paul but the the points in that from from what i've been reading as well are you know uh, just as relevant if not more so now in terms of using that informal learning and and kind of you know the knowledge sharing piece and creating that real culture of of um, knowledge um, sharing to help achieve business and performance goals and cultivating that Surely now that's kind of at the front and centre more now than ever. Well, I think, I mean, informal learning's not new. I mean, you know, it, it, maybe we didn't pay that much attention to it, but it's been around. And mm. one idea I use is that every organisation has this massive informal learning engine chugging mm. away in the basement. It, it, and uh, so informal learning is a natural part of how all organisations learn and a huge proportion I don't know, 70%, 80%, whatever research you look at, of what people know to do their job. They learn kind of on the job or yeah. via colleagues and so on. They learned it all outside of any formal learning channels. Yeah. And that's that big informal learning engine in the basement. But unfortunately, no one's been down to the basement in decades often, yeah. and it's yeah. covered in cobwebs and chugging away <laughs> valiantly. And luckily, you can't turn it off because if you could turn off informal learning even for a few weeks, it, yeah. the, the organisation would be on its knees. Yeah. The um, but what you can do is go down to the basement and clean it up, and put some new light bulbs in, and and, and yeah. some decent fuel and all the rest of it. Um, and if you know how to do that, you hell you can even put a turbocharger on it. You know, yeah. so there's lots you can do yeah. to improve the way that informal learning works in an organisation and the impact it has on what people need to learn. Yeah. Um, so th there's a lot of good things that can be done. Yeah. And, do, do you think in in uh, an informal learning, a really good example of informal learning in an organisation then really helps support the growth of that learning culture in an organisation. Well, every every organisation has a learning culture, despite what some consultants might say. Um, there is always a learning culture. The question is, how effective is it? Mm. And is it serving the needs of the organisation um, effectively? Um, so... Uh, what is a learning culture? It's an interesting question. Mm. And clearly there's a number of things that you can point out and say that's obviously part of a learning culture when it exists. For example, curiosity, you know, you've pointed out collaboration, sharing, those kind of things. Um, yeah. You know, doing things like after action reviews. So there's some activities that can take place that will generate that kind of thing. But a lot of learning culture is just the the general idea and attitudes of people in the organization about wanting to do well and perform well and saying well well that didn't go as well as we thought how can we do it better next time that to me is a classic indicator of a, of a learning culture is how can we do it better next time um, but so it's it's kind of that desire to deliver well to their customers and stakeholders that to me is is what it's all about um, 
because you know the learning in and of itself is fine, but actually learning that sits in someone's head and doesn't get operationalized mm. isn't going to help that much, you know, in a way. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That's true. That's true. Um, thanks, Paul. And as we've already touched on, um, you, you've wrote you've wrote numerous books, um, which which are absolutely fascinating reads. I'm, I'm working my way through your your books right now. Um, and, and thank you for sharing those um what was it like writing your books and what inspired you to do that um the first book was the the blue one on informal learning and i'll be perfectly honest i didn't want to write a book Mm. but i was told by marketing people you should write a book because that's a good thing to do from a marketing perspective and at that time our focus in the company was was much more on informal resources and things like that Mm. and and uh so i wrote the book and i found it actually really quite hard work to be honest because Mm. it wasn't i was doing it for the wrong reason in hindsight and i've kind of coached quite a few people since around writing books we know they sort of ring me up and say hey i'm writing a book and you've got any you know and i'm always happy to sort of have a bit of a chat and I always say, get real clarity over who you're writing it for, but more importantly, why you're writing it in the first place. And yeah. you need that. Uh, writing a book such a big thing without that push of motivation, it's very easy just to stop writing it. Um, so the second book, I really felt like I had something to say, and that went a lot easier. And the third book was the same. Yeah. Um, in fact, I said after the second book, I don't want to write another because that was hard work. And then the third one just kind of happened because I started yeah. writing an ebook and it got bigger and bigger. And I yeah, find yeah. now to the inevitable and I wrote a trilogy. <laughs> um, but <laughs> a three great trilogy. Is three trilogy so there's no way I'm writing another one. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what all the all the great um, authors say, Paul. <laughs> except for Douglas Adams, and he put several more than three books into his trilogy. <laughs> Uh, no thanks thanks for sharing that and i think you uh, you know people who write books would probably echo what you've exactly what you've just said there uh it's, it's a mammoth task isn't it and i think you you do actually really need that that crystal clear clarity um when, when you're doing that as well because um, it's a tough gig right uh yeah yes and no um i think it's tough when there's a lot of other stuff going on that's what i found the mm. actual if I could carve out time to do it, it wasn't that bad yeah. um, personally, but that will vary from person to person, author to author. But but the big thing for me was all the other things going on in my life that, that required time. Yeah. Um, and that was really the drag on it is I would suddenly find I was two weeks and hadn't written a word because I'd gotten mm-hmm. pulled off onto other things that were urgent. And, of course, that you lose a bit of momentum then, and, and mm-hmm. that was then difficult getting back into it. So that was the biggest challenge was keeping the momentum going for all of the books, quite frankly. But um, yeah, so it was just all the other busy stuff. Yeah, no, sure, sure. What advice would you give to your 18-year-old self, Paul, and why? Oh, get a life. Um, (laughs) Well, at that stage, I was at university, so I was probably taking myself far too seriously. and. I don't know. In hindsight, I'm not even sure I could think of something off the top of my head right now. Mm. I'd have to reflect on that, but then I'm a reflector anyway. So yeah, no, sure. Well, this next question might help you reflect on some of that then, Paul. <laughs> as we, uh, as we, hopefully, if you don't, if you're happy sharing with us, just explore a little bit more about yourself. I mean, I know a little bit about your, your journey that you've shared with me and from what I know of you. 
Um, but for our listeners, um, I think it's fair to say you've had quite an, an interesting life and uh, a non-conventional way into uh, the profession. I think it'd be a fair reflection. But could you tell us how it all began and what that journey looked like and how you, how did you end up at World of L&D? Well, I suppose it depends how far back you want to go. If you want to go far enough back, I guess I arose like all of us from the primordial soup. Um, <laughs> the Yeah, well, I grew up on a farm. And yeah. one of the things that well, I remember um, oh, 20 years ago, I went on some personal development course and they said, get in touch with the dreams you had as a kid. What did you always want to be? You know, was it a fireman or a nurse or a whatever? And And I couldn't remember. I couldn't think of anything that I kind of, hankered after when I was a kid. So I, I phoned my parents in New Zealand and uh, I said, what was it? And they said, we don't know. So I said, there must have been something because my brother wanted to be a fighter pilot and and um, and uh, he never got there, unfortunately, because he, he had some problems with his ears. But uh, um, so he didn't didn't make the cut, but he did go, you know, and have a crack at it. Yeah. Um, and then a few weeks later, my parents rang me up and said, you know, you always talked about travel and um, going out and seeing the world. Perhaps that was because, you know, we had quite a few overseas visitors come past our family and visit us from, you know, from family that was overseas. So I kind of had a bit of a window on the world that would have been probably less than typical for most uh, farm kids in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and that's eventually what I ended up doing. So I actually have traveled a huge amount around the world. Um, I was actually pulling some old passports out the other day from yeah box after moving house and I was startled at how many pages and extra concertina pieces were in there the hundreds and hundreds of stamps so uh, um, yes I've traveled extensively through a lot of different areas in the world particularly in the more remote areas yeah. and uh, that's been quite an eye-opener and and quite a um, you know quite a journey and a, and a lot of interesting things happened some brilliant times in, in and then way, from well, there, ended up getting back to back to England because I ended up with right of residency here due to yeah. a British grandparent, and used to come back here and about a bit of money, and then head off travelling again, <laughs> and so, came back here and ended up getting sort of stuck and building my own business and so on. So I'm sort of sort of here now. Yeah, it's quite funny when I come back into the UK or when I used to come back into the UK before the pandemic after travelling, they'd look at my New Zealand passport and say, "Why do you live here when you got one of these?" You know. So. <laughs> <laughs> tell tell us a story about your your times um, back traveling through some of those um, remote areas of the world. Um, oh, and I don't know. The, uh, hairy experiences that you might have had in those uh, in those times. What's your what's what's your memories of those times? Of uh, was you you was a was you a tour guide at one point? I for for several years I worked with one of the overland expedition companies, and I took trips. Um, all through Africa, you know, sort of London, Nairobi, further south, back again. So I crossed the Sahara three times. Wow. Um, also ran trips across Asia and um, well, Europe and Asia and, and all through there and then up across the Himalayas into China. So I ended up crossing the crossing the Himalayas from Pakistan wow. up up into Western China eight times. That's amazing, uh, Paul. So a huge amount of stuff in yeah, and also travelled around South America, North America, and a number of other areas as well on my own, not necessarily with the travel company. So, yeah, a lot of different things. One of the things that I found startling when I was working with the over, Overseas Overland Expedition is we yeah. could, I mean, one of the things we'd do is we'd drive up to the airport in Nairobi and pick up 20 people and then yeah. say, right, let's drive to London. Yeah. And then four months later, tip them out in London. 
But of course, they'd just flown in into Nairobi from wherever they happened to be. So, you know, a librarian from New York or a, a real estate broker from Zurich and, you know, all sorts of people, different walks of life. Um, mm. uh, and then they'd all be sort of thrown together into this very strange environment. And, um, you know, driving out of Nairobi airport, they're all agog at what's there. And, and so we'd head straight out into the countryside and set up camp. Yeah. And... Uh, I remember on this, I think at the second night on one trip, someone started shaking me awake in the tent and said, I think I can hear lions. And I said, yeah, it's Africa. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's, you know, for them, it was such a hugely different environment. But what was interesting is the amount that they changed as individuals due to the experiences they had on that trip. Mm. So for those of them that were writing a journal, and many did, they wrote in their diary or their journal pretty much every day because something new happened that was unusual and rare and for them a very strange experience. And they had to stop and think, well, how does that affect me and how do I operate within this new context? Um, And one or two of them I do remember saying, do you keep a journal at home? Not all of them did. But some of them did. And I said, well, how often would you write in it when you were, you know, being a librarian in New York, for example? And they'd say, oh, I don't know, once a month, you know, once a fortnight, because not much happened that was different in order, you know, to generate a journal entry. And what was interesting is the more different experiences they got exposed to, the more they would change. So it kind of, in a way, that was an introduction to me to learning experientially or learning. I didn't think of it that way at the time, but in hindsight, what I was seeing was experiential learning and action and people learning and changing who they were and how they behaved as a result of the experiences they were having. Um, and that's obviously the much, you know, the most powerful way to learn. Yeah. Because I, you know, I could have run a lecture on what they were going to encounter, but until they encountered it, they weren't necessarily going to take it on board or deal deal with it, or, or certainly not change as a result of anything I could have told them as a lecture prior to the day they were going to have, for example. No, it's going to be one of my questions was going to be about that must have been a huge learning experience. <laughs> All of those um, experiences and adventures that you, uh, you you mentioned there all across the world. You must have learned so much. And like, like you've just said there, Paul, you know, seeing other people go on that journey. Too. Yeah. Did, did, that, did that kind of influence you in terms of getting interested in learning in, in some way or other? Um, in hindsight, it probably did. I wouldn't say at the time it was saying, oh, as a result of this, I must go and be an L&D professional. Um, I thought no. I'd really consider myself an L&D professional, quite frankly. I've never really had any formal training in it. Um, but I certainly changed as an individual myself in the first you know, couple of years of doing that job. And then the rate of change slowed down as I became much more familiar with it. Yeah. Um, even if I got into another environment, went to a new country, um, it, you know, I, I kind of was more, uh, I don't know, change proof, I suppose, because I'd learned better coping mechanisms for the amount of change and the speed of change that was going on around me. So that was interesting. Um, but certainly it, it, in hindsight, it made me aware of that. And I've thought about that since, but I got into L and D really quite by accident as, um, and I'd been working as a, uh, a director in a NASDAQ quoted kind of multinational IT company and for a variety of reasons anyway whatever happened I, I left that company uh, part of it was sold and there was a bit of a mess up with the new owners and things but anyway long story I won't go there but as a result of a mess up that had happened um, 
I had been offered a free place on a training course because uh, for one of my staff, because I'd sent some of my staff off on a training course to a public training company. And they'd messed things up and said, oh, in compensation, we'll give you a free place. And uh, I hadn't actually taken that place when I ended up leaving the company. So I thought, well, I'll have it myself. So I did. So I went on this uh, one week management course um, just because that was available. And and now I had the time. And on the day, the second day, the, the, the tutor sat down with me at lunch and said, what are you doing here? And so I explained it and he said, what are you doing now? And I explained it. And he said, well, do you want to be a tutor and teach management? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was my, uh, so I did, I joined them and I started uh, teaching that same management course for, and I did it for two or three years as a trainer working for this, uh, associate trainer working for this big company. And I, as an engineer, which was my original background, I was sort of saying, hang on a minute, we're putting these people in a classroom for four or five days. And yet, anecdotally, and what I'm hearing back from people, for those I did keep in contact with, very little seems to happen or, yeah. you know, it, it didn't really seem to be solving a problem. And that was when I first started thinking about L&D as something that didn't work very well from an engineer's perspective. And one of the phrases I sometimes use is if, traditional L&D and the way it was practiced, and certainly in the way I was being encouraged and trained to practice it then, um, if I was an engineer with a similar level of failure, and I'd be probably killing people with the machines I was yeah. designing with that level of failure rate. So I tend to, so I've come at L&D kind of from an odd angle, I suppose, and A, the pragmatic what works and what doesn't, uh, you know, farm boy sort of thing, where theory doesn't matter is just what actually works in practice. And then, of course, from an engineering perspective, saying, well, we've got a, a problem here that we need to design something to fix and solve. Um, yeah. and, and so that's all given me probably quite a different approach. Yeah, uh, I find it quite amusing these days. They, they talk about this um, uh, design-centered, um, or, you know, this sort of design thinking as in, mm. uh, this quote-unquote new thing in L&D. That's the same basic principles that I was taught when I did engineering school over 40 years ago. Yeah. So I find it quite amusing that it's all touted as something new and wonderful. You know, we're thinking about, well, what does the end user want? And then how do we talk to them about it? And then how do we come up with some designs and yeah. bouncing backwards and forwards and all the rest of it? I mean, that's just, to me, that's just so blatantly obvious as, a, as an approach. So I was quite kind of puzzled when it was put forward as something new and wonderful. Yeah. No, no, sure. It's interesting to get your perspective on on that, <clears throat> Paul, and to get that kind of different perspective of someone who's not kind of been a, a traditional um, L&D sort of person who, who's come into it with all these different experience, life experience, skills, um, background, and then, and then look at things from a completely different perspective. I think that's, that's really helpful um, in terms of the profession, um, myself and you know, a lot of people I speak to and I know too didn't, you know, intend to ever kind of the career choice wasn't where really, oh, I want to become an L and D professional. You know, they kind of just they just sort of fell into it and found it and then brought a lot of different thinking and skills into that too. Um, and I think it's quite a diverse profession um, is is L and D as well, isn't it? There's a lot of different, like say, people with different experiences and backgrounds that that come into it from from engineering, from teachers, from uh, operational delivery from from all, all kinds of different backgrounds and experience. I think that kind of helps 
you make the uh, the profession hopefully what it is you know it's not to say that it's 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 perfect profession and there's a lot of kind of different thinking within our own profession about lots of different things isn't there which I guess leads me on to my next question really about kind of you know you'll have seen in your time lots of trends and fads come and go and you know we're always talking about the next big thing in L&D aren't we and you know there's so many mixed messages as as an L&D professional and I can't imagine what it must feel like to someone who comes into the profession new. Um, so what what do you think L&D professionals should be focusing on right now and why? And what would be your advice to anyone who's just joining the profession right now? Well, I think there's there's probably two areas, but the, I'll tell you a story. I, when I was at university and um, I played basketball and was I'm, I'm tall and I ended up playing for well, actually for the New Zealand under-23 team. Um, wow. But one of the things that happened is a, uh, a very famous at the time American basketball coach was touring New Zealand and he agreed to do a session with our team. And so we did a training session with him and our, our own coach stood on the sideline. And it was fascinating because he he talked to the team and he said, right, who wants to do what? You know, what? You know, I'm here, I'm yours for a couple of hours training session. What do you want to learn? You know, what can yeah. I teach you? What can I help you with? And several of the the, the guys, and I think me included, because I was quite young in the squad at that point, were saying, oh, I want to do this. And it was all the fancy stuff or a, yeah. a special play for this or whatever. And a couple of the more sort of seasoned people in the squad said, well, no, we want to practice our dribbling skills or our passing skills. And and that's what we ended up doing. And this guy said, you've got to get the basics right before you can start doing the fancy stuff. Yeah. And I think that is at play in a lot of L&D where they keep chasing the bright, shiny new object, the latest fashion, the latest Mm -hmm. fad. And I'm not saying that shouldn't happen, but I think it's often done at the expense of getting the basics right. Yeah. Um, And and I think the basics actually are pretty simple, is is focusing on the behavior that you want to come out the other end of whatever training course or intervention you're doing. and too often they worry about the, the way they're going to deliver it or the technology they're going to deliver it with. There's all sorts of things that get in the way. So I think there's two areas that need the focus. One is to work on the basic skills and the basics of delivery and getting it right for the organization. But then also you have to keep a bit of an eye on what is happening at the front edge of the thinking to say, well, what's going to turn up that I can use when I'm delivering on the basics? But if yeah. you spend all your time focusing on that front edge, actually, it's never going to work well. Yeah. Um, so it's just a it's just a thought. Yeah. No. Thank you, and I'm sure our listeners will uh, resonate, and hopefully, particularly for some of our listeners who who might be coming in, just joining the profession too. It's it's really important to get that perspective, I think, as well. So um, thanks for sharing that with us, Paul. Well, they have these surveys on, you know, what's the latest, what's the new fashion, what's the new yeah. thing that's going to hit yeah. L&D this year. Yes. And I, I actually don't care in a way. Yeah. I, I, there's just so many people not doing the basics well. It's the 80-20 rule, if you want to go back to that. Is yeah. 80% of your kind of results will come from doing the 20% of the basics really well. Yeah. So let's get them right. And that'll give us the biggest bang for our buck. And then we can go on and then get, get concerned about, you know, um, making them tweaking them and working them with better technology and better this and better the other and it's it's a balance to strike i'm not saying ignore one in place of the other but i think we we forget about the basics so much no it's true 
That's true. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that as well. Um, I'm going to just bring us back to you, um, Paul. Now, as we're uh, as we kind of probably come into sort of tail end of um, of the podcast, um, I just wondered if you share with our listeners what you're most grateful for right now and why. Um, I guess my health. I've managed to avoid COVID. I've had my second jab. That shows you how old I am. Um, but uh, I think that's a big one. Um, I'm also grateful that I happen to be in the online learning space from a business perspective because yeah. I could have been in any other industry. You know, I got here by accident. So yeah. uh, it certainly wasn't planned. And of course, the online learning, digital learning space is a pretty good place to be from a business perspective right now. Yeah. So, you know, there's a number of things I'm grateful for. I'm also grateful for now I'm living north of Northampton, a little village, and there's more horses than cars go past on the road outside. So that's <laughs> kind of cool too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a number of things. No, that's that's uh, that's really kind of you to share that with us, um, Paul. And one one sort of final question, if I may, then. Um, and it's it's a bit of a. I know you're a reflector. You've shared that with us, and I know you you like to reflect on things. But if you if you can reflect on this, and if you can give us an answer, that'd be uh, that'd be that'd be great. So you're talking about speed reflection here, are you? Uh, well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> we'll, we'll 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 see how it goes. It's it's it's, it's a deep one. But it's one I just want to throw out there. Um, and, and as someone who's kind of, you know, um, a, a pretty much globally travelled person, um, and you'll, you, you know, you've you'll you've experienced a lot of cultures, uh, met a lot of people in your time, and seen a lot of things. I wondered, would you say in closing that the the pandemic has brought us as people closer together, or do you think it's driven us further apart? Hmm. Yeah, that does take some reflection. I think it's done both because I can certainly see some polarization in society on how it responds. Mm. Um, I think I've noticed around the world, whether that's true or not, but my perception is that those countries where they had a culture of either helping each other strongly or a culture of um, law abiding, for want of a better term, were better able to handle the pandemic because the general populace actually obeyed the lockdown rules and the separation rules um, or just pulled together and did it even if they didn't want to because they could see it was for the greater good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's other countries where there was a, a, a sense that people said, no, I want my freedom and bugger the consequences, that actually it's caused them problems. And um and then, of course, you get those who are, you know, following the letter of the law or the, the the guidelines and others who are quite clearly flouting that. So that's giving some divisions in terms of us and them, us who are doing doing it right and them who are not. And, and, and then, of course, from the other side of that, you say, well, us who are being free and, and standing up for our freedom against uh, arbitrary rules and regulations. So I think it's done both. Um, Quite what that'll mean in the future, I have no idea. Yeah, no, it's uh, interesting times ahead, I think, for us all, isn't it, Paul? Well, there was that old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times, and I think we're certainly <laughs> living in interesting times. And uh, I, for one, quite fascinated to be here and observe what's going yeah. on around me. And I'm grateful that to date, none of my family or close people close to me have 
you know, had any um, bereavements and things as a result of COVID, although some have caught it yeah. uh, and come through it sometimes, you know, with, with quite an experience. Yeah. Um, no, so, I, but I do feel sorry for so many people who have, you know, had family bereavements as a result of it. Yeah. No, that is quite something to be grateful for, Paul. I think you're, uh, you're right. So, uh, no, thank you, Paul, and thank you so much for joining us um, for this podcast and for sharing everything that you have shared with us and all your 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 experience, your reflections with us. It's been really appreciated and uh, really insightful and interesting. So. Uh, Thanks very much for uh, for joining us and sharing everything with us on this podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with me, they're welcome to do so. And um, probably my website at paul-matthews.com would be the easiest place to start. Yeah, that's you've just you've just literally stole my next question, Paul. I was going to ask how if people wanted to connect with you to follow you, learn more about what you do, or just generally get in touch with you. How could they do that? So I think you've 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 touched that. Is 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 that the best way for people to contact you then? Well, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn pretty easily, or as I said, paul-matthews.com, and there's a bunch of videos and things on there which talk about some of my thinking and ideas and learning and development. So you know, go for it. There's a few free downloads and so on. So um, always happy to happy to help if I can. No, and you are very generous in terms of sharing your uh, your knowledge and your uh, experience, um, Paul, and really grateful for you as, as, as a person, as a professional for, for all that you do, um, you know, in, in our profession um, to help um, with that. So thank you from me um, for doing that. Oh, it's very kind. Thank you. No, thank you. And, and and thanks once again, Paul, for, for joining us on, on, on the show. Really, really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners will have uh, gained a lot from this uh, this conversation um, today. So so thanks very, very much, Paul. And uh, yeah, uh, until the next show, um, listeners, do take care of yourselves and each other. And thanks and bye for now. Well, that was a great show, right? I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed the conversation. If you're enjoying the Be Brilliant People podcast, don't forget to spread the word. Subscribe via your favourite podcast player of choice and also share. Spread the word. The Be Brilliant People podcast with me, Mike Bedford. Thanks for listening.